Hey, I am really glad to be with you guys today uh, to be able to speak. I appreciate wherever you are, whatever campus you're at. Thanks for letting me take the time uh, just to be with you guys. Uh, I want to start with a story, and I've told this story in a couple of men's settings, and if you've heard it, uh, too bad. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories to tell, uh, and, and, and it's kind of a weird that it's my favorite story because I've said here before, I, I'm an Oklahoma Sooner fan, right? I was Sooner born, Sooner bred. When I die, I'll be Sooner dead. And um, so I love the Oklahoma Sooners. Um, hate is a strong word that I don't really want to use in church, but... You know, I do not like the Oklahoma State uh, University Cowboys. I, I don't like them. If you're an Oklahoma State fan, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, God will forgive you. It's all going to be okay. Uh, that's what grace is about. But uh, I, I'm an Oklahoma Sooner fan, and I want to tell you this story uh, about a game that happened in 1966. There was a quarterback for Oklahoma State. His name was Randy Johnson, and he was a nephew of President Lyndon B. Johnson. And by every expert's judgment, he was a mediocre quarterback on a mediocre football team. Uh, but mediocre or not, quarterbacks and teams at Oklahoma State could be li lifted to legendary status and legendary grace greatness if they could just pull off an upset of their biggest rival, the University of Oklahoma, in the last game of the year. Uh, it would be amazing because Oklahoma holds the, uh, it is the most lopsided in-state rivalry in college football. It's 87, 17, and 7. Uh, we are dominant. All right, I thought that was funny, but you didn't. <laughs> but this year in 1966, when I was one year old, uh, it had not been a good year for Randy or for the Oklahoma State Cowboys. There seemed to be little hope of redemption in this game as the clock was winding down and they were losing to OU by six points in a driving rain. And as gesture of goodwill, the OSU coach put in uh, all of his seniors for the last play of the game uh, so that they could end their college careers on the field with each other. He told Randy, the quarterback, to call whatever play he wanted to call because there was little hope of anything happening. They were 80 yards away from the end zone. And so Randy, when the team huddled up together, to everyone's surprise, he called play 13. It was a trick play that had never been used before in a game because it had never even worked in practice. But he called it, and play 13 worked. <laughs> OSU scored on the last play of the game, and they won by one point, one of their 18 victories in 102 years. <laughs> the fans went wild. They carried Johnson off the field. And the coach ran over to him and yelled at him, Randy, Randy, why did you call play 13? And Randy said, well, we were in the huddle and I looked over at old Harry with tears running down his cheeks and that big number eight on his chest. It was his last college game and we were losing. And then I, I looked at Ralph with that big number seven on his chest and he was crying. And so in honor of those two heartbroken seniors, I added eight and seven together and I called play 13. <laughs> the coach looked at him and said, Randy, eight and seven don't add up to 13. And Randy thought about it a minute and then he said, you're right coach and if I'd been as smart as you, we would have lost the game. <laughs> now two things I really like about that story. Number one, I guess that's the kind of education that you're going to get at Oklahoma State. <laughs> but the other thing is I have to admit that I wish 
I could live with that kind of mentality. At the end of my life, I don't want to look back on my life and wish that I had done something. I don't want to wish that I had risked something. I don't want to hope everything works out okay. I don't want to live like that. I really, truly want to live a life that matters, a life that makes a difference, and I want my kids and grandkids to live a better life than me. I want you to live a better life than me. There was a young pastor in Zimbabwe who was killed for his faith, and shortly after he died, they found a note that he had written, and it said this. It said, my face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions are few, but my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ because I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me, for my banner will be clear. I want to live a life that is easily recognizable by God. Not to earn anything, but I hope to leave something. And as a thank you for what he has done for me. And let me tell you why that's been on my mind. Because about 10 years ago, there was something that changed within me. I don't know what it was, but up until then, I had always thought in terms of how old I was. But something changed about 10 years ago, and I began to think in terms of how much time I had left. Does that happen to anybody in here? All right, the rest of you are liars. <laughs> if it hasn't, it will. Because there will come a point in each of us where we will be thinking, instead of thinking I'm 18, I'm 21, I'm 30, happy 40th, somewhere between 40 and 50, you're going to wake up and you're think, I'm going to run out of time. And that's just a happy thought I want to leave you guys with. And instead of looking back at how old you are, you're going to look into the future and sense that there is a finish line out there. And if that wasn't enough, someone introduced me to deathclock.com. Anybody ever hear of deathclock.com? About three of you, right? All right, so I want you to check it out. I don't want you to do it here because... You'll get all emotional and you won't pay attention, so do it later when you go home. But you go there and you type in some questions, you answer some questions about yourself, and then it tells you the day you're going to die. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to die on Wednesday, July 14th, 2038. And my wife is sitting over here, and I just want her to know that I'm spending everything before that day. <laughs> I'm not leaving my kids nothing. Don't go before me. Now, that's not true, right? Well, we're not going to die on that day. They can't predict that. Just last week, Cam talked about this. He reminded us that we don't know when the end's going to come. It could come tomorrow, next week, next year, 20 years from now. We don't know. And so maybe instead of worrying about when it's going to happen, we should instead worry about how we're going to spend the time that we have left. 
And there is a guy in the Bible who gives us some perspective on this, and he brings some context to our existence. He's a familiar guy whose story is a big part of the Old Testament. Moses was a guy who was born into the middle of a drama. He was born into the middle of a story that was being written by God. He was a Hebrew boy that was raised in an Egyptian palace. He was actually somebody who learned to walk like an Egyptian and talk like an Egyptian. I am so glad some of you got that reference. Somebody knows the bangles. That is awesome. I was so worried. I was like, somebody better get this. Because that's stinking funny. The problem was that Moses saw himself as the center of the story. That's the way he was raised. And he lived life like that until he found out who he really was. And then he killed a couple of guards. He ran into the wilderness and he existed for the next 40 years. He assumed no real purpose, no God. He didn't really do anything worthwhile. He was just going to wait until the day he died. And that's when God stepped in and says, I actually have a purpose for your life. And I actually want you to learn about your real place in this story. And so he pulls him out of obscurity he lead, to lead the Israelites out of a captivity. But really, Moses doesn't even learn the lesson then, does he? Because he continues to see himself as the center of the story. And as a result, he does not get to experience the promised land like God had said he would. But you and I know what that's like. Every one of us in here knows what that's like. Because all of us are no different than Moses. All of us grow up thinking that we are the main character in our story. And so, marriages fall apart because we see ourselves as the main character in the story with everyone living to please us. We seek our happiness from our spouse because that's their role for me as the center of the story, we trade integrity for what feels good or what looks good or what we think will complete us. We trade intimacy for what feels best to us or what we think we'll like. We trade influence in our kids' lives and our family's life for influence at work or with a group of people. And we chase after power and prestige and privilege and we trade a relationship with God to chase after small gods that do nothing but steal your time. And we end up asking, is this all there really is? And you know, the truth is, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, that's what we end up asking. Is this all there really is? We look for something to fill the void that's within us because we have traded our purpose for a false promise. All because we see ourselves as the center of the story. And while you've read and you may know about the story of Moses, what you may not know is he wrote a very famous psalm that brings some perspective to our lives. And listen to what he says. In verse 1 he says, "Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations." He's talking about the nation of Israel. "Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world before creation, before you brought everything into existence, from everlasting to everlasting, you 
are God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And what he's saying is this, is if you want to understand the bookends of your life, the bookends of your life are not your birth and death. The bookends of your life are everlasting to everlasting. Those are the bookends of our lives. From everlasting to everlasting, not our birth and our death. It's everlasting to everlasting with God at the center of the story. And in the New Testament, it's Jesus. It's God in human form in Jesus. And so the context of our existence, of my existence, the only way we'll ever understand purpose, the only one way we understand the point of our lives is to understand the context of the story and come to the realization that you and I are not the center of it. God is actually the center of the story. He is the center of the story. He goes on in verse 3. You turn people back to dust. You, were, you turn people back to dust saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight. Stop right there. He says this, no matter how cool you are, right? No matter how rich you are, popular you are, and I like to think I'm really cool. No matter what you know or who you know or what you've accomplished or how famous you are, at the end of it all, you're going to return to dust because you're not the center of the story. Verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. A thousand years is like one day that has just gone by. Or like a watch in the night. And they used to split up the night into three or four watches that were three hours and they would go and watch the flock. So your life is just like one watch in the night. One watch in the night. Look at what he says in verse 5. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. And listen to me. He says, from the perspective of everlasting to everlasting, this is what our life is like. Like grass in the morning dies and it's gone. It's less than a three-hour watch of the night. And God's point, Moses' point here, is not that your life and my life doesn't matter, even though that's the way it feels sometimes. Moses' point is this. You don't get to do whatever you want. It's that your life is so brief, listen to this, your life is so brief that it is futile for you to try to create meaning out of it on your own. Because you and I don't have enough time. You know why? Because we waste the thing we have most of. And you know this is true because there are people who are sitting in here right now and across all of our campuses who live today in regret because of something they didn't do or something that they wish they'd done. Something that they, they gave up on. Something that they didn't say. And they wasted their time and they wasted their chance and they wasted their resources because we waste the thing that we have most of. Our only hope of making a significant impact is to understand our place within the context of God's story, in the context of what he is up to. And understand this, because you, you, you all understand it, because we've all worked with people, we've worked for people, we've been friends with people, we've been married to people, we've been in relationships with people. Maybe you are one of them who make themselves the center of the story. Maybe you've lost or experience the loss of a relationship because you made yourself 
the center of the story. Listen to me, people who try to create significance within the context of their own lives and power and wealth, and who, who, who know, they know, they know who they are and what they are trying to do. They, they try to create that within the context of their lives. And the problem is they always make it about themselves. And when they do, they always run out of time. And generally, they don't end well. Because you cannot find real and lasting purpose when it's all about you. And here's why. It's been tried. It's never been done. It's been tried and never been done. Because Moses says, it's not about you and me. It's about everlasting to everlasting with God. Jesus at the center. And he has invited us into a story that he wants to write to find meaning and purpose in our lives. Now, look at how it ends. Verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words... Teach us to live as if our days are numbered because our days are numbered. And if you have planned something and, and counted down to the day, my son just got married a couple of weeks ago and, and, and every day they were sending these texts, you know, 18 more days, 17 more days, 16, oh my gosh, stop it. Just get married already, golly. <laughs> Quit spending money. Because this is about me. No, I'm just kidding. If you've ever planned something and counted the other days, you know what this means. It says, teach us what it means to live as if we don't know how many days we have. Why? So that it was a result in our heart gaining wisdom. He says, Lord, I realize my days are numbered, so give me the wisdom to spend them something on something significant in my life. Because normally we just waste God, give me the wisdom to make better decisions relationally, financially, parenting, professionally. The courage to live a life that impacts and imparts that kind of wisdom. I acknowledge that my time is limited and since my days are numbered, show me what to do with the days I have left. And so, that's the context. Here's the application. We're going to close out this series called Endgame by looking at some verses in 1 Thessalonians 5. So if that's the context, 1 Thessalonians 5, as we close out this series, is the application. And Paul says this is what is the significant use of the time you have left. Listen, every one of us in here, every one of us, if we could probably have one question answered, it would probably boil down to what is God's will for my life, right? Or what is, what's next? What's out there? What is God's will for my life? I mean, wouldn't you like to know that? I mean, even if you don't believe in God, wouldn't you like to know the point of it all? Wouldn't you like to know where life is? Wouldn't you like to know the outcome of it all? I mean, sure we would. And the reason is because we want to be the point of the story. We want to know God's will because we want to know where God's sending us. What's next? And what we'd like is for God to create a roadmap with directional arrows to point us into the next decision and going. Why? So that we can be in control of it. In fact, if, if God would just get on a path that we desire or the direction that we want to go, that would be even better with us. But what that is is you and me making ourselves the center of the story. And that is not the way God operates. He never has and he never will. At least most of the time, it will never be that way. We'd like for God to do that. But I guarantee you this, 
I guarantee you this. When you are the center of the story, you will not get a directional roadmap. But when you make God the center of the story, here's truth. You, he has already revealed his will for you. He has already revealed his will for you. You don't have to ask him, what is your will for my life? Because he's already revealed it in his word. He's already said, this is what I want you to be about in your life. When you make me the center of the story, when it moves from being you at the center to me at the center of the story, this is what your life is going to look like. You don't need to know what happens tomorrow. You don't need to know what happens a year from now. You don't need to know who you're going to marry or what kids you're going to have or why. You just need to focus on today. And when I'm the center of the story, these are the things that I want you to be about. And I've revealed my will for you. And if you will just concentrate on the things that I want you to focus on, I'll take care of everything else. That's called faith. And I believe that he is saying to you and I that this is the way that I want you to spend your time. In fact, look at verse 18 in 1 Thessalonians 5. At the end of what we're going to talk about, he says, for, this is how I know this is God's will for you, for this is God's will for you. It actually says it. Pretty cool, right? For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. If you don't belong to Christ Jesus, then you're not going to operate this way. But if you belong to Christ Jesus, then this is God's will for you. And look at what he says in the very beginning. Look, if, if God's will for you, if this is God's will for you, I, I just want to sum it up in one statement. And if you don't remember anything else I say, just walk out of here with this one statement tonight. I think what he's saying to you and I is live today in light of tomorrow. Live today, the time you have left, in light of tomorrow. In light of what you know about me, in light of the fact that I'm coming back, in light of the fact that your days are numbered, live today, live right now because you belong to me, do my will, what I've already revealed to you, do my will with the time you have left, live today in light of tomorrow. But what's his will? What's the this? Look at verse 12. I think the very first thing he says is be gracious. Verse 12 says, dear brothers and sisters, honor, here, you guys really, listen. Focus in on this verse, all right? It's a really good verse. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are leaders in the Lord's work. Hey, man. I didn't write it. I just, I just deliver it, right? They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love for their work and live peacefully with each other. So I'm just going to be down here at the end of the stage when you guys want to show me some love tonight, okay? <laughs> if you're at a campus, text me, let me know. I'm just kidding. Let me just say this. Uh, there's a whole lot of people. You're, you are a part of a church. You're part of a small church in coastal Georgia that has a huge imprint in the world. Do you know that? This is a small church in coastal Georgia that has an enormous imprint on the world and is making a difference in the world because of you. Because we're a church that does life, because we're a church that does the will of God. That, that, that tries to discern the will of God and where God is moving and going to, you know what, you just saw a video about it. That's the kind of church that we want to be. That's the kind of church that we are. But church doesn't just work on its own. There are people that sit back here that work for this church every week doing sound and lighting. There's administrative assistance and ministry assistance that you never get to see. 
There's worship pastors and children's pastors and student pastors and all kinds of pastors, community pastors. There's directors and elders and leaders. And I think what Paul is saying is you need to stop and say thank you. Listen to me. I have, I have a son who just got married and who loves his wife, but he loves the Lord. I have another son who is serving as a intern at the East Campus. And, and listen, they have a really good mom and an okay dad. But they have a lot of people who poured into their lives in this church. And I owe a debt of gratitude that I'll never be able to repay for what they have done in my kids' lives. There are people among us. And so I hope you'll take the time to say thank you to the people who make this footprint possible, that make this impact possible. Look at what he says next in verse 14. He says, be involved. Listen to me. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, be patient with everyone. I think he says that you and I need to be involved in people's lives. Listen to me, the church, today's church, our church, needs to rediscover the power of a Jesus-centered community. Jesus came into the world and created a whole new concept of community by saying anyone could be a part of his family. And then after he returned to heaven, his followers continued to live that out in the establishment of the first century church that opened its doors to anyone without restriction. The only qualification was that you be a follower of Jesus. And at its most fundamental level, Christianity said to the world that everyone is equal. And that's a message that had never been heard before. And that's a message that literally changed the world. And volumes have been written up to try and explain the, the phenomena of early Christianity. And for the most part, it all comes down to the same general conclusions. It was not so much that, that, that their doctrine was right, although the beliefs of the early Christians played a part of it. It wasn't their ministry plans or their mission statements or their strategic plans. It was their lives and the way they engaged the world around them. It was about them building relationships with people that make a difference. It was them realizing that they were not the center of the story. That's why relationship works. Relationship does not work when you make yourself the center of the story. The church does not work when you make yourself the center of the story. But when we make God the center of the story, then the church works. And that was the early first century church. Jesus understood that one of the most basic human needs was to be accepted and loved and affirmed and nothing about that has changed. And he came into the world, he, and since he came into the world, he has been looking to continue to meet that longing through people like you and me. Because when he becomes the center of the story, it changes the way you live. And it changes what you value and who you engage with and the compassion you extend. When Jesus needs today is a church full of people who will say yes to people who are in need, who will say yes to people who are strangers, who will say yes to people who have been estranged by the sinfulness and the hopelessness of this world. Listen to me closely when I say this. People's lives are made whole in Jesus-centered communities. That's what Jesus wants his church to be today. That's what Jesus wants this church to be today. In fact, Gerald Lofink in his book, Jesus and Community, wrote about these early Christians and he said this. 
He said, the type of care, revolutionary in comparison with pagan society, extended in principle to all members of the community in need of help, shows that the use of brother and sister in Christian communities was not a mere affection. Care was extended above all to the widows and orphans, the elderly and sick, those incapable of working and the unemployed, prisoners and exiles. In other words, no one was excluded, no one was neglected, no one was left out, no one was a stranger. And this was simply because they decided to make Jesus the center of the story. They knew that he was the center of the story. Look at verse 15. He says, I want you to be forgiving. He says, see to it that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. With Jesus as the center of the story, it means the cross is the center of the story. And what that means is this, God's grace comes to you. God's mercy is available to you and me. God's forgiveness is extended to us. And I don't care what it is you have done, nothing trumps Jesus' death on a cross. Nothing. There is no sin that trumps Jesus' death on the cross. And what that means for you and me is that God looks at us once we embrace that story of the cross, once we embrace and understand who Jesus is, God looks at you and me and says, forgiven, holy, righteous, son, daughter. But here's what happens. When we understand the power of the cross, there should be a shift that takes place in our hearts. Because God's grace and forgiveness doesn't just come to us, it should flow through us and begin to flow out of us. It means that we see people and their stories in a different way. And we don't treat people the way we think they deserve to be treated. We treat people the way Jesus has treated us. And I know this is hard. You know why I know it's hard? Because I know forgiveness is hard. Because there have been people who have hurt us and that, that many of us here are still hanging on to. But I want you to think for a minute what God has forgiven you of. I want you to stop and think for a minute of all the times you said, I'll never do that again, and you did. I want you to think of the way that he, I want you to think of the weight that he has taken off of your shoulders And he says this, I want you to forgive people the way that I have forgiven you. We are not just recipients of God's grace and forgiveness. We are distributors of God's grace and forgiveness. And when you understand the cross and you embrace it, here's what happens. Forgiven people forgive. It's that simple. And the reason we forgive has as much to do for us as it does for the person we're forgiving. Because what happens when we forgive is it begins to release the grip that bitterness can have in our lives. Forgiveness breaks the chains of the past and allows us to move forward. Our Heavenly Father's desire for you and for me is to experience the grace, the gift of grace and forgiveness, and then to let it flow out of us. And then he says in verse 16, to always be joyful. Does anybody struggle with this? I do. Because here's why, when I am the center of my own story, I begin to look at other people's lives and their ability and career and money and possessions and prestige, and I lose sight of what God has given me. I lose sight of what he has blessed me with. 
I, we get unhappy with our life and we sure wish God would do something about it. And so instead of finding joy in what God has done or is doing or has given, instead of gratitude, we tend to measure God's goodness based upon how we see, feel, and experience this world. And we think happiness, if it would just change, we think happiness will complete us. But that's simply not the case. In fact, the word the, the root word hap is in happiness is the same as in happenstance or happen or hapless. It, it, it's dependent. Our happiness, in other words, is dependent. Our gratefulness is dependent on what happens, on our circumstance. And so our faith and gratitude is based on circumstances. And as a result, it's fragile. And when life doesn't work out, we tend to wonder, where is God and why isn't he interested in my life? And that kind of fragile faith cannot stand up to the pleasures and pressures of this life. But when Jesus is the center of the story, you search for joy in the midst of your circumstances. This is when, when James looks at you and says, I consider it pure joy when I face trials of many kinds. Why? Because it's fun, because I like it, because I wish I'd get more? No, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you can be complete and mature, lacking in nothing. That's what James says. Paul says, I've learned to be content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in need or not in need. Why? Not because God made me happy. I've learned to be content because in Christ I can do anything. That's what he says. My happiness is based on my circumstances. My joy is based on my relationship with Jesus and the fact that he is the center of the story and I'm not. I'm, when I'm trying to be happy, I've made myself the center of the story. When I'm experiencing joy, I have made God the center of my story. Look at what he says in verse 17. Never stop praying. So be prayerful. And what he means is this. He says this is persistent prayer. And here's what it is. It's hard because it means daily, moment by moment, recognizing Jesus as the center of the story. And some of you probably feel discouraged because you keep trying to pray, but you can't seem to be consistent with it. Some of you probably feel discouraged because you've been praying for something for a long time and God hasn't answered. And I know what that feels like because I've battled my share of discouragement in prayer. But here's the thing I've learned through it all. I am never more fully aware of who I am and who God is than when I pray. And when I pray, I more clearly understand that I am human and he is God and that he, not me, is the center of the story. And that is when I always love God the most. Because persistent prayer continually brings us together with God. And persistent prayer opens a door for God to act in our life and give God, gives God the opportunity to change me. Prayer is not about changing God. Prayer is about allowing God to change me. And he says in verse 18, now I want you to be thankful in all circumstances. I want you to be thankful. And my thankfulness is a reflection of my acceptance of God being the center of the story. Listen to me. God never commands or wills for us to do anything without first giving us the necessary resources to make it possible. And in the case of the, this case, the most important resource that you and I have that is fundamental to understanding who God is and how he works in our lives is this. This single verse that, that you'll know, he says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. More than anything else in this verse, it is a reference to the complete and absolute sovereignty of God. And that means regardless of what you're in the middle of, he is in control. God is in complete and total control of all things. And nothing you do and nothing I do, nothing other people that does do to us has an effect on us 
None of it is out of the complete and total control of God. That is the sovereignty of God. And the only way that people like you and me are ever going to be able to do something as seemingly ridiculous as, as the command to give thanks in all circumstances is to understand and accept and put ourselves under this overarching truth about God as we go through life. Because listen, this will work if you are not the center of your story. The only way this works is if God is the center of the story. And here's why. Because God with, with God as the center of the story, I am not concerned about what I'm walking in now because I already know what my future holds. And so no matter that I am in the waiting, waiting for God to act, waiting for God to move, waiting for him to do something in my life, it doesn't matter because I already know tomorrow. I already know what the future holds. I already know what he's going to do. I already know who wins. Listen to me, you were created. But here, how do I know this is what he wants you to do? Look at what he says. For this is God's will for you who belong to Jesus Christ. You were created by God with eternity in your heart. You were created by God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And his desire for your life, his will for your life is to be involved in relationship in other people's lives. To forgive like he has forgiven you. You were created for so much more than happiness. You were created to experience joy even when it feels like he's not there. You were created to be in an intimate relationship with your father through prayer. And you were created not to tell your own story, but to play a part in a greater story that God is trying to tell. And for those who recognize that Jesus is the main character in the story, God says, this is how I want you to spend the rest of your time. And this comes when you gain a heart of wisdom, when you number your days. So live today in light of what you know about tomorrow because your days are numbered. And so spend them wisely. Let me just be really honest with you as I close. I struggle at this. And you know why I struggle at it? And my wife is here and she can confirm this. I really like making myself the center of the story. I really like the world to revolve around me. Does anybody else? I like that. And so I battle it every single day. Every single day. And I battle it for two reasons. Number one, I battle it because I make poor choices. I battle it because I make poor choices. And I battle it because I had poor choices modeled for me. I had that lifestyle modeled for me. By a father who thought life was all about him. Who decided that he was going to live life as the center of his own story. And when he died, he died with no significant relationship in his life, with no money, with no nothing, not anything. And three days before he died, I sat in a hospital bed by him and I looked at him and I had to sit there and I had to tell him that there was no hope. There was nothing anyone was gonna do. Nobody's gonna fix this. Nobody's gonna correct this and I don't know what tomorrow holds. Here's what I do know. You have lived, and I said this, you have lived your life as the center of the story. But you can end differently. However much time you have left, you can end differently. And one day, I'll find out if he did. You 
can end differently. Regardless of where you've been and regardless who has been the center of your story, you can end differently. Regardless of the secret sin that you have been holding in your life, regardless of the things that you have allowed to be the center of your life, regardless of of what you have done in your life, you can end differently. Your life can end differently. Your life can have significance. But it'll only happen if you make Jesus the center of the story. That's the only way. If you do not believe in God, you know what I'm talking about because you are here because life is not working for you. And I can tell you why life is not working for you. Because you're the center of your story. And if you make God the center of your story, I'm not going to tell you everything's going to be perfect. In fact, you're going to have times when you're wondering where God is. But you don't have to worry about it because you know what tomorrow holds and you know how you're going to spend your time. But it only happens when you make God the center of the story. Listen to me, everybody across all of our campuses, your story can end differently. It's a choice you make. Father, thank you for your love and your grace in our lives. And thank you for the chance that we have to sit and listen and to learn from your word. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. Thank you for becoming the center of the story. Thank you for making the cross the center of the story. Thank you for the grace and mercy and forgiveness that we can only experience there. Thank you, Father, that nothing I've done, I've done, nothing I can do, nothing I will do, Father, trumps the power of the cross. Because of you, I have hope. Because of you, I can live a life of significance. Father, help us live a life. Of, help us number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Amen.